This is Nullius in Verba, a podcast about science. What it is and what it could be. It's co-hosted by me, Smriti Mehta from UC Berkeley. And me, Daniel Lagens from Eindhoven University of Technology. In this episode, we discuss one of the cardinal sins of science, confirmation bias. We begin by reading aphorism 49 from Novum Morganum, followed by a classic task developed by Wasson in 1960 to study selective testing behavior. In a nice demonstration of confirmation bias, I mishear Daniel say the numbers 246, which is what Wasson used in the original task, when he actually says the numbers 248. We then go on to discuss how confirmation bias affects much of what we do with scientists, from hypothesis generation and testing to evaluation of scientific evidence. We also discuss antidotes to confirmation bias, some that are already in use, and some that could potentially improve scientific practice if adopted. Enjoy! The human understanding, when any proposition has been once laid down, either from general admonition and belief or from the pleasure it affords, forces everything else to add fresh support and confirmation. And although most cogent and abundant instances may exist to the contrary, yet either does not observe or despises them, or gets rid of and rejects them by some distinction with violent and injurious prejudice, rather than sacrifice the authority of its first conclusions. It was well answered by him who was shown in a temple the votive tablets suspended by such as had escaped the peril of shipwreck, and was pressed as to whether he would then recognize the power of the gods, by an inquiry, but... Where are the portraits of those who have perished in spite of their vows? All superstition is much the same, whether it be that of astrology, dreams, omens, retributive judgment, or the like, in all of which the deluded believers observe events which are fulfilled, but neglect and pass over their failure, though it be much more common. Shmirti, I have a challenge for you. Are you ready? (laughs) <laughs> Am I ready? Wow, this is a bit of pressure. Okay, yeah, sure. Yes, I was. Right, I was so born. I was born ready, Daniel. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Very good. I'll give you a series of numbers uh-huh. that follows a specific rule. Yeah, <laughs> and and your challenge is to figure out what this rule is, and and you can do this through tests. So you can test something, and you can give me any number, and I will tell you if it follows the rule or not. Yeah. So so here is it clear? It's very So clear. here's the series of numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah? The series of numbers is two, four, eight. So you can now test any hypothesis you have about the underlying rule. There's an underlying rule. And you can give me any other number mm-hmm. and I will tell you if it follows the rule or not. Okay. So how about um, eight? 10, 12. So your next numbers are 10 and 12, basically. I already gave 8, right? Oh, you already gave 8. Oh, 2, 4, 8. Sorry, yeah. So then 10, 12, 14. All right. Perfect. Very well done. They they follow the rule. So it's a yes. Okay. How about 100, 101, 102? Also. Okay. How about negative 1, negative 3, negative 5? No. No. Does not follow the rule. Okay. Um, how about 110, 130, 140? Yeah. Also good. Oh. Okay. <laughs> There's something going on in your thoughts about yeah. which hypothesis you're testing. Hmm. How about... What what was the rule for this last one? Why were you surprised? Oh, because it's they're not increasing in um in a set. You know, it's not 110, 120, and thirty, which means it's no. not evenly spaced increasing. Okay. So you had numbers. you had a clear hypothesis here, and yeah. and that was now falsified. Right? How about negative five, negative four, negative one? 
negative five, negative four, negative one. No, I'll I'll give it. It's any set of positive numbers that increases. Oh, positive numbers. Okay. Okay. I knew yeah. there were increasing numbers, but not negative That's numbers. It. Okay. Yeah. Now, now, do you think that maybe some people might have been tempted to to ask numbers that you know you have two, four, eight? So it sounds like they could also double, for example, right? Oh, yeah, two, four, eight. Mm -hmm. So you could have said something like sixteen and thirty-two and sixty-four, right. for mm -hmm. example, right? Yeah. Now this task is actually an experiment by Wayson from nineteen sixty, mm -hmm. and there are two common approaches to try to figure out what the underlying rule is here. Uh -huh. And one of these is called the modus ponens, and the other is called the modus tollens. Uh, yes, of course. So yeah. the modus ponens rule is basically where you try to affirm something. And the logic here is formally, if B, then Q, you confirm Q, and therefore you infer something about B. So let's say if the rule is that numbers double each time, mm -hmm. right? Then you would say something like 16, does that follow the rule? And I would say, yeah, 16 fits, that's fine. And therefore you infer that, you know, maybe it is doubling indeed, right? Right. Now the opposite approach, modus tollens, here we reason if P, then Q, but now you observe not Q, and then you can logically infer not P. So if the rule is that the numbers double, but you would have asked something like, okay, so not the number nine. Is that, is that valid after this series? And then it would still be an increasing positive number, right? So after eight, nine is fine. Mm -hmm. So I would tell you, yeah, nine actually fits. And this would falsify your prediction about Q. Mm -hmm. And therefore you would be able to conclude that your hypothesis was wrong, which also happened somewhere throughout the process, right? Somewhere you had a hypothesis, you were a bit surprised. And that was surprising and informative. Now, what this Wason task shows uh, what the research shows is that people have the tendency to only ask for confirming evidence. Right. Whereas you actually learn more if you get an answer that disconfirms what you thought, right? Right. Because all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait, I thought it would be this rule, but this is now falsified. So it's an informative answer. Mm -hmm. But people have the tendency to ask something like, okay, does 16 fit? But even if you get a yes, there are many other instances that uh, are many other rules that could also explain this. So this task is used in the scientific literature to study something that we call confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. So people basically have a positive test strategy. They try to figure out if they will get a positive answer to their question, whereas a negative answer is actually much more informative. Right. And it's logically valid. That's... And, and it's in terms of a hypothesis testing approach, also the logically valid one. So right. this is going to be our topic of today, right? Yeah. Confirmation bias. Right. We, we also had this quote by Bacon, who was already upset about confirmation bias in mm -hmm. people. And it was so systematic. 400 years ago, he was already worried about it. But because we set a sort of rule for ourselves that if we have a podcast and we have a topic we want to discuss where there might be some sort of problem, we don't want to fall into confirmation bias. So our first question is going to be, Shmidi, why is confirmation bias actually maybe just a good thing for science? I mean, I can, I can see how in certain cases where you have a really, really, really low prior um, about something, um, that you're almost right that your, your your confirmation bias leans like leads you towards being a little bit more skeptical of those things, right? Because you have a strong prior for some things. So you're like, oh yeah, levitation is probably, you, you know, you have a prior hypothesis that, or your, your prior is that, oh, levitation is not really a thing. Um, mm -hmm. And so anytime you see any evidence in favor of that, you're maybe more likely to be skeptical of it because, you know, you have a very, very strong prior, which is a form of confirmation bias, right? That you're 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 not willing to give up your prior belief that, it's that levitation might be true, that might not, mm -hmm. it, that it's not true. In those cases, maybe, but I honestly am not sure. I can think of many, at least not in science, that I can think of many cases in which confirmation bias the opposite might be approach a, is good. Yeah, yeah. But, so it's only good in the negative direction. Yes. If it stops us from believing things. I uh, yeah, that's what I would say, but I'm not sure. What do you think? I don't know. Maybe sometimes it helps us to discover new things. 
many of those might not hold up. Uh, we might be, you know, a little bit too optimistic and not seeing alternative explanations for what we think is the right explanation. It gives us something to figure out because we think we're on the right track. Maybe we stick to it a little bit too long. But mm. you could maybe argue that for science, mm. if we want to figure out new things, it's also problematic if we would give up too often, right? So confirmation bias is a bias in the direction of seeing what you hope to see. Right. But you can sort of argue maybe if it was the opposite direction, we would continuously give up on stuff doing science. Yeah, I see. So maybe maybe you're on the right path. You just don't realize it. Maybe your experiments are not well designed, etc. But you stick to it long enough because you're trying to confirm your hypothesis. And then we end up finding something that we wouldn't have if you were willing to give it up very quickly. Okay, I can see that. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I, I, we're trying to make uh, the best case for it, right? <laughs> right. I mean, we call it a bias because, yeah, apparently we don't really think it's the completely right attitude. We definitely are a bit biased, but at least, you know, it might bring us towards new discoveries. Sometimes. But do you think that it, that justifies, because I mean, I, I do think that it is really trying to avoid confirmation bias is really what makes science different from other ways of sort of approaching mm -hmm. knowledge, um, right? It, it, and, and I, you know, I think, and sometimes as I was thinking about what we were going to talk about in confirmation bias, it occurred to me that peer review is like so, it's so obvious of a thing that we don't even think about it as something that we do to avoid confirmation bias. But that really is one of the main reasons why we engage mm -hmm. in peer review, right? Because otherwise I could be sitting here thinking everything. But the reason we have other people evaluate our work, other researchers, is because we know that our reasoning and even our evaluation of our evidence is is always in favor of what we think is true. So the reason you ask other people to evaluate it is so you because you're trying to make sure that, oh, do you also see what I see? Because I am, you know, biased in favor of my mm. own hypothesis. Um, and it's such a central part of what how we do mm. science. Um that really it seems like it's just an exercise in trying not to fool ourselves, right? Like the scientific enterprise is just a big exercise. And yeah, we're just trying to make sure very, you know, carefully that we're not just tricking ourselves into believing yeah, things. I think it's a good point. And in some way, maybe we accept that individuals have this confirmation bias. So if they find something mm -hmm. that they hope is true, they stop looking for alternative explanations that could make the effect they want to find disappear, for example. Um, I remember once talking to my former supervisor as a master, um, master thesis supervisor, and um, he mm -hmm. told me a story about a colleague who had double-checked data entry and had found some mistakes in the data entry, some just, you know, transcription mm -hmm, mm -hmm, errors. Mm -hmm. But then he had also analyzed whether the transcription errors were in the direction of his hypothesis. And that turned out to be true. <laughs> so even his mistakes had confirmation bias in them towards the, well, if that's really on an individual level, such a strong bias, then, then indeed it seems like science is basically set up to push back on this. I think that's a good observation. Right. And I, I mean, in psychology also, I mean, we have, I mean, nothing comes to mind at the moment, but there are definitely cases where you have like studies that show that even it's not just what you believe, but even the way you perceive things can be altered by what you expect to see. Right. So I think it exists even in some cases at a, even a more fundamental mm -hmm. level of what you end up observing, yeah. right? Um, Another way in which this works that I remember people talking about is if you, Sometimes you design a study, but you don't really know what your hypothesis was after a couple of months, you know? I mean, maybe this happens <laughs> if you're like, you know, yeah. just coming up with some fun study or maybe you're supervising a student or something. Yeah. You did brainstorm a little bit, but you didn't write it down, which maybe we do a bit more now than in the past. And then a student or somebody else would come or you look at the results and you would just be like, oh, this makes perfect sense. And then somebody mm -hmm. reminds you, yeah, yeah, but we actually predicted it would work exactly the opposite way, remember? You're like, oh, <laughs> I, I guess so. So in that sense, if you see the data, it automatically makes sense. That's a very strong, right. strong effect, I think. But here's a question for you, Daniel, and maybe the, and this might be more specific to psychology, where I feel like it's not even, because we can talk about confirmation bias at the level of, oh, the way you 
you know, integrate new evidence into your existing beliefs or the way you evaluate them, maybe you're more skeptical of it. That's one thing. But I think when in, in psychological research, I sometimes worry that even the whole process of generating actual evidence is also sort of, you know, tainted by confirmation bias because in some way, like, so we, I do, you know, sort of survey research, we mm -hmm. ask people like questions and stuff, right? We design questionnaires, et cetera. And in some sense, the, people can only answer questions mm -hmm. that you ask them, right? And so I've seen it so many times where even the, the way psychologists are asking the questions are leaning, they're sort of leading questions or they lean one way or the other to where you can tell that, oh, of course you're getting, of course your results are, oh, people think that women are, you know, out of control because you ask the question, are mm -hmm. women out of control? Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> You know, so it's, it exists, I think, in psychology, even one level further where just the evidence that you're generating itself is biased in the direction that you want yeah. to go. And that seems very, very problematic. And, and yeah, then you're yeah. waiting for this peer reviewer to say, but really, I mean, look, take a look at what you've done here. I mean, what would have <laughs> happened if you've done it this other way or if you controlled for this and they make you go through all the effort to test some sort of alternative explanation. And then it's especially annoying if they're actually right, because yeah, you were biased in this direction. Yeah. Yeah. But then what do you do with those data? Because it's, it's not even that, oh, is there an alternative explanation? Is that you're, the, the whole, the, the evidence that's been generated maybe cannot be trusted itself. In an extreme sense, right. you can set up an experiment that can basically only support your prediction. That would be the most extreme version right. of confirmation bias and also the this sense in which is most problematic. So you've set up your whole study yeah. to just find what you already wanted to find and you've not given yourself right. any probability of being proven wrong. Yeah, yeah, in that sense, the data, you can't do much with this data, that's what it is. But yeah, then you get situations where in the peer review process, somebody will push back and make you do this additional study or something to look for a confounder because they really don't think it's been tested well enough. Yeah. And that would be the equivalent of only asking, right, if I just had one hypothesis to your to your task of like 246, and I only asked you things that confirmed, right? If I only asked you, oh, yeah, 8, 10, 12, and 16, yeah. 18, 20, yeah. and that was it. And then you're happy um, and say, this is the rule. Which... I've discovered it. It's that. <laughs> but actually, you know, you should have tried a little bit harder to prove yourself wrong. Um, there, there's a yeah. nice paper about this by Plot from I think 1964, more or less. It's called Strong Inference. And, and the um, mm. paper is about how you can prevent these kind of things, right? That you basically prove yourself wrong all the time. Mm -hmm. And he discusses something which he calls the question. And the question is something you should ask before you design your study. And that is, what would prove your hypothesis wrong? Or what would disprove your mm. hypothesis? And, right. and so this is a mindset you basically need to go into before you design the study. And I mean, naturally, yeah. you might skip this step because you don't think about it. You're so focused on finding what you want to find that you forget about this. But there are a couple of nice ways to um, build a habit of thinking of alternative explanations. And um, one other approach that's kind of nice is by a researcher called McGuire, which is called perspectivism. And it sounds a little bit weird if I hmm. put it like this, but he basically says <laughs> every hypothesis is true and false at the same time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. gosh. <laughs> it also doesn't help that like that this is a 1973 paper where he calls it the seven koan of psychology. So it's very zen and, mm. and this kind of stuff. But there is a good mm. point. And that's basically that he forces people to think, think about the conditions under which this hypothesis would be true and the conditions under which this hypothesis would be false. And then maybe you can design a study where you actually give these alternative conditions also a shot or something, you know? So in any case, it prevents a little bit the focus on only when would it work, you know? Right. And so we have, this reminds me of, we we have, um, we have talked about the, you know, Richard Feynman gave this um, talk called, like, which eventually became an essay, The Cargo mm -hmm. Cult Science. So we talked, we I briefly mentioned it in the previous episode, which is like the first principle is that you must not fool yourself. But there's a, there's one sentence in that essay that I really, really like, which is where he's talking about integrity as a scientist. And he says that I'm talking about a specific extra type of integrity that is not lying but bending over backwards to show how maybe mm -hmm. you're wrong that you ought to do when you're acting as a mm -hmm. scientist. And I think it's really this idea of you should really be trying 
to show, like just bending over backwards to figure out like how could mm. I be wrong that you have to operate. So it's like it's not just not lying, but like additional integrity of like really trying to make sure that you're not fooling yourself that I think is so, so important that we I'm not I'm not sure if we discuss it enough in or it's ever explicitly mentioned or even encouraged in some sense right because when you start talking about publication bias there's so much pressure to show that you have Mm -hmm. found something and you've gotten significant results that it's really you know in practice it seems like that's not encouraged. it's a good point and the encouragement that you don't get um is in part because i don't think we appreciate how uh, much more we should trust a finding when people have bent over backwards because our own confirmation bias also right. makes it so that we read a paper and there's a study showing something and another study showing something. You're like, wow, they showed it like three different ways. But actually, they should also right. try to get rid of it in three different ways. And then if it survives, yeah, then you can be like, okay, right. well, this is really well tested. But I don't think we even balance that out. Like one additional study showing it showing the same effect, same prediction, versus one well-designed study that had a real shot of destroying the effect, but it survived, you know? Yeah, we don't give those equal um, appreciation, I think. Right. But then, wait, Daniel, wouldn't you say um, that the second type is the one that we should really... I mean, if we do the second type and we do it well, isn't that the only one you need? Right? Mm -hmm. If you have done a really, really rigorous test... Right. And so it, and so null hypothesis significance testing is a form of modus tollens, right? We say if P, if my hypothesis is true, then Q, right? Then I should expect to see this. And if you have done, if you've designed a study that does that well, or you've made some kind of risky prediction based on your mm-hmm. hypothesis, right? If P, then Q, and Q is a really risky prediction, um, then if that is falsified, then you can clearly say something about, right? Then you have a much better chance of saying something either yeah. way, right? So if your test is very precise and very risky, then you should be able to make a claim either yes. way. So I would say if you're doing it well, then shouldn't you just need the second kind? Well, the, the risky test is good, right? And um, I, I think theoretically, you probably need both to a certain extent. In some sense, maybe it's not so weird. We start by identifying an effect because that's already kind of difficult sometimes in psychology. You know, people are difficult <laughs> yeah. to study and make predictions about. So maybe it's okay that somewhere you right. start by an effect. But then if you know that you have this reliable mm. effect and you really want to explain why it happens... That's the point where you have to start to chip away all these alternative predictions and explanations to really build a case for this one thing that you're predicting uh, or your your own explanation, mm. basically. And that part, yeah, doesn't happen that often, I guess. Uh, in general, mm. people um, often are so focused on proving their prediction that if I ask right. them... Because I ask this the question, you know, it's a very good question to ask. Um, it's, uh-huh. it's also a great yeah. question if you, you know, fell asleep during a colloquium or something and you wake up at the end and you have to ask a question. <laughs> you can always say, so, so could you tell me, like, well, what would actually disprove your hypothesis? Which experiment would disprove it? Like, it's a very <laughs> smart sounding question. Pro, pro, pro exactly. to everybody. <laughs> but, but just if you do a study and then I ask people, okay, so you make a prediction. And I ask, what would confirm your prediction? And uh, they often say, well, a significant effect, right? That's typically oh, the, the yeah. confirmation of their prediction. But then what would not right. support your prediction? Yeah, first people mm. try to say, well, maybe a non-significant effect. And I say, yeah, but maybe the effect is just a bit smaller or something. You didn't have enough power. So how do you know? And people are not even trained mm. in to how think. to show that they really didn't find uh support for their prediction right right? which i mean sometimes when i give these workshops this you know you can do this with equivalence testing and we we don't have to go in detail but just the fact that if you ask a question Uh like what would prove you wrong people are just silent for a long time and i i don't think we should blame them for this but this says something about how we educate people we don't even give them the tools to prove themselves wrong yeah no and that's that's a good that's a good point. And I was trying to think about the, for my research, like, yeah, what would I see that would lead? And, and I feel like I don't have a quick answer to that, actually. It was something that I would have to sit down very carefully and mm-hmm. think about. Um, 
it, it just doesn't seem like an easy thing to do and it's not something we get to practice mm -hmm. at all. It also leads to the situation right. that many people debate each other for forever because both sides seem mm. to be very good at just keeping their own story going for a long time, you know? People often also don't say like, okay, but if you do this study, I'll stop arguing with you. I will give in. You're right. I'm wrong. Yeah. I mean, those situations yeah. uh -huh. are much rarer than you'd like them to be, I think, you know? Yeah. But it, I mean, maybe things are improving because what you're talking about, an adversarial collaboration seems like that would be an ideal structure to, to deal with that situation, right? Where you have two opposing and everybody thinks that they're right. That seems like a perfect place where you want to like, okay, let's get together and decide everything in advance. Like, yeah, how are we going to test it? What would we see that would lead us to believe one or the other? And then you go out and do those um, yeah. those studies. And, so. it, and it, has, it has a very nice and positive name, adversarial collaboration. But really what it means is <laughs> yeah. I'm going to force you to really clearly say when you give in and, right. and admit that I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> but then both sides do it in a, you know, in a friendly manner. So, yeah. Yeah. But how much, I'm, I'm not sure, is it, uh, are there a lot of adversary collaborations? Are you aware outside of, I've only, I mean, I mean, I'm, you know, in psychology, I've seen it happen a few times, but I'm not sure if that's a science why, like, are other scientific disciplines also engaging in it? Good question. Or is it only, is it just like the psychologists that are bickering with each other all the time about are emotions, you know, real? Are they not real? Well, it's just, yeah. I mean, it's a good observation because I do think it definitely originates in uh, psychology to begin with. So there's an, Probably, uh, yeah. a paper from, yeah, I mean, somewhere 1996, I guess, something by Daniel Kahneman actually did one of the first where they got mm. together, two teams got mm. together. Mm -hmm, so he's, mm -hmm, he's, mm -hmm. he's been promoting this idea quite a lot. Right. Yeah. For a long and, time. um, also as a way to resolve replications, for example, if they work or if they don't, right, he says, you right. know, start an adversarial right. collaboration, get together and figure it out. Yeah. Um, they're definitely mm -hmm. starting to become a bit more common. So there have been examples in the literature. Mm -hmm. um, there's also a recent paper that I like quite a lot, um, which is called the Many Smiles Collaboration. And, and a lot of these <laughs> many something kind of studies uh, basically mm -hmm. just combine a lot of data from different labs to test something. But in right. this project, they mm -hmm. got a couple of experts together with which have different views on uh, fa the facial feedback hypothesis. So if you smile, mm -hmm. if you make your mouth into a smile, will you also feel happier? And, and what are the mechanisms underlying mm -hmm. this? And they got all these people together and basically came up with a couple of tests to see which of the most common explanations for this effect uh, could be tested together in a way that you would yeah, be able to say, okay, this seems to have more going for it than this other one. It's, it's interesting to mm -hmm. see that uh, if you read the paper, it's not even a very clear answer. Maybe it's just because they did one study. Maybe we have to do a couple, you know. Um, but I think it's very common in psychology and not so much beyond. And, and maybe some uh, sociologist or something should study our field and see why we bicker so much and if we really need these kind of tools and if other fields have <laughs> other uh, ways to deal with it. Oh, that's it. Well, as we're talking, I actually think I do remember an example from something in medical sciences about homeopathy. Hmm. There's apparently, uh, it's called, I think it is a, it might be a famous study. I'm not totally sure, but they tried to show that water molecules can still exist in trace amounts um, mm. and stuff. Um, and I think they had an adversarial collaboration to figure that yeah. figure that out. Um, um, whether, yeah, whether you can still see trace amounts of certain molecules after they've been sort of diluted over and over again. Um, but I don't know a lot of the details, but I, that's one thing that comes to mind that's outside psychology. But yeah, I, that would be a curious thing. I, I'd like to know how often that happens. And how often that's done purposefully as opposed to, you know, oh, somebody just opposes, writes, you know, like a bad review of your paper and you're like, let's get in touch as, you know, as opposed to doing it sort of systematically mm -hmm. from the get-go. Um, but that seems like a good tool for dealing. But here's a question that comes to my mind. I can actually give you an example from mm -hmm. my research where I think I might be falling prey to <laughs> sure, confirmation bias. Yeah. So one of the things I'm interested in is help-seeking, academic mm -hmm. help-seeking behavior. And I've been trying to, there's a construct that I'm interested in and how it might relate to like some, you know, how students' perception of their instructors um, or what they're you know, experiencing in the classroom and how might, that might affect their help-seeking behavior in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Now, the tricky thing is that 
operationalizing help seeking can be very, very mm-hmm. difficult to do, um, especially when you're doing something where you're just observing actual classroom behavior as opposed to, you know, bringing people into the lab. So that can mm-hmm. be really difficult. So, so far in my research, I haven't found, um, you know, the effect that I'm looking for, but I'm, it's almost like I'm trying to make, you know, because but I'm like, you, you I know, know that there, I haven't done it. you just know good... it's there. It has to be. Yeah, yeah, go on. <laughs> no, w- w- was the question, I might be falling into confirmation. Oh, maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe. I don't know, maybe. It just sounds like maybe. Okay, <laughs> no, go no, on. But the, no, no, but the, but the question is, but I know I haven't done a good job of operationalizing. Of then you would have found seeking. the effect that you know is there. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But, but do you see what I mean? Like, it's like, at what point, like, right? Because you could have done something mm. wrong. Right? Like, I could have, I, I could be doing something wrong. And I think this is where we're talking about how, oh, yeah, if I just uh, stuck out and maybe tried to do it mm-hmm. a little bit better, maybe I would find... um what I think is going on. Yeah. And I don't know where, where where is that line of I go from, oh, yeah, you know, maybe I've, I've done something wrong to, oh, no, I've done everything as well as I could. And it's it's yeah. not there. Like, I can say with certainty mm-hmm. it's not there. Like, that's hard, right? Like, because I'm like, well, I'm an idiot. I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. So, yeah, you know. No, it's true. And how, how would you go about this, like, looking for yourself? Like, am I just hanging in there irrationally due to confirmation bias? Or am I still right. testing sensible things? And one thing you could think of doing is before you start with this whole enterprise of testing, and you, you know, you have one operationalization of helping behavior or help seeking or, but before you start, let's say you draw out the whole hypothesis space, all possible things that could be the way to do it. So you make a whole list of experiments. You're like, okay, I could do it like this. That might work. But this is another way that mm-hmm. it might work. Or maybe I should look at help seeking. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, just looking looking at the teacher for a very long time in a hopeful manner. Maybe that's my measure of help seeking. Or mm-hmm. maybe it's like, are they sending emails? Or all, the, all these kind of things you can vary. But let's right. say you start this mm-hmm. from the beginning. And you say, okay, so there are basically 32 studies I could do. You know, that's rationally the Mm -hmm. whole set of things I think makes sense. Yeah. And then you start to test. And I guess, well, by the time you get to 32, you should rationally give up. You know, you shouldn't come up with any new excuses, Mm -hmm. maybe because now you're, maybe you've learned something from the data, but it's time to give up. But maybe after the top 10 or something, Mm -hmm. the most likely ones, you're like, okay, now it's just getting a little bit silly to continue. But I think we don't do this. So we tried a couple of ways and then we think, yeah, but it could be something else, but an undefined something else. And I think if we define all the alternative things left and we evaluate them, we're like, yeah, but now it's getting a little bit silly. Now I have to test these really kind of out there kind of version of experiments. And I think um, uh, it's time to give up. Yeah, that would be that would be a good approach. But that sounds very difficult. To <laughs> yeah, do. you don't know what the whole hypothesis <laughs> space is as well, right? Yeah. Exactly. And then you look at your data and you're like, oh, but I guess maybe this is how it is. So we very often come up with new ideas looking at data. That's the whole tricky part as well. So we keep ourselves going. Yeah. But I do think uh, hanging in there for a bit, that's exactly the role of confirmation bias, I guess, the positive role. Because maybe you discover something very useful uh, in improving help-seeking behavior in an academic context. And that would be lovely. So it's also worth hanging in there for a while to make sh- really sure that nothing you've tried helps because if it would work it's pretty nice. Yeah, I agree. So the um I yeah, there's this concept um so I was a teaching assistant for a course with an astrophysicist and the course was just mm-hmm. about science. It was called Sense and Sensibility in Science and one of the topics we discussed with students was what Dr. Saul Perimeter called um scientific mm. optimism. And he calls it like this like can-do attitude <laughs> of like sticking to a problem, you know, long enough to be able to solve it. And I think it's a very positive spin on this idea of, but yeah, maybe you, you do maybe need a bit of like stick for a little bit to be able to, oh yeah, there's an issue. I'm trying to yeah. solve it. Yeah. Trying your best not to fall prey to confirmation bias, but then sticking with it just enough to mm. be able to say conclusively, you know, things one way or the other. And that's where I think I'm not. Like, I can't say conclusively that it's not there. And I think, well, I like to think that I would be open to saying, yes, I was wrong. Like, the independent variable I'm interested in is really does not affect the dependent variable. I think I would be very happy to say that that's the case. If I could say that, if I think I've done it well enough and I've tested things well, then I think I like to think that I would be able to yeah. open to that. Yeah. But 
Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. So so this is hanging in there or being optimistic. I think it's a nice way to frame it, like being optimistic. I don't know if there's a difference yeah. between optimism and confirmation bias, I guess. Um, you know, <laughs> but, but anyway, so you hang in there for a while. So that's one way in which confirmation bias uh, affects the way that we try to generate scientific knowledge. The opposite, which is maybe more problematic, problematic is if you find something, Right, you do find support for it. Right, and let's say um, I don't know, maybe maybe you don't like student emails, and actually you want to show that uh, help-seeking behavior in the form of emails does not improve students' grades, because then you can say, look, we don't mm. have to the students stop emailing, please. I've shown that this doesn't work. <laughs> so you're very happy with a result like this, and you do one study, and you're yeah. like, okay, it's done. Right. Stop emailing. But but then somebody could say, yeah, but sorry, but actually, you know, there is something here or uh, the effect or um, this is confounded by something. And if we remove this confound, you would see that the results change. So if you've gotten the result that you want and then you stop really quickly. Yeah, that's mm. another way, right? Uh, that right. confirmation bias in impacts what you do. Yes. But I it like it makes me think about the difference between null results and negative, mm -hmm. you know, results, because you could find right. Like, imagine you were you were trying to show that you thought that, oh, using students using laptops in the classroom was not a mm -hmm. good idea. And you were trying to show that that there, it actually has a negative impact mm -hmm. on the results. What happens if you found that it actually has a positive impact on the results? Right. That would be different than finding null mm -hmm. results. Right. You, you don't find anything. Things are not significant. Um, and I wonder, do you think people are more or less likely to accept that their hypothesis might not be true in the null case or in the negative? Yeah, if it's case? even the opposite direction. Mm. Yeah. Because mm. you could be like, oh, I could have done something wrong, even in that case. Right. Where you're finding something totally the opposite. You're like, well, that mm -hmm. certainly can't mm -hmm. be true. Right? It's interesting. Yeah. Um, one thing that this makes me think of is that when you take a look at publication bias in experiments, mm -hmm. um, if there is no effect and people only publish mm -hmm. significant results, then the type one errors should fall on both sides in both directions, right? So sometimes you find a positive type one error, which would then maybe support your prediction. So then you're very happy, right? You've found a type one error, but you know you don't mm -hmm. know it's a type one error or whatever. So, but you found a significant right. result. But sometimes it should happen that you find an effect in the opposite direction. It's still significant, right? And a very simple model mm -hmm. of publication bias that says people just care about significant results. That's it. That would predict that we also have a lot of those in the literature, but those are just gone. Mm -hmm. You you don't see those. So in meta-analysis, you see that right. there are all these positive findings, and sometimes you can clearly see that those mm -hmm. are only the flukes being published. But just if we just do tests, we would also find them the opposite direction. So it seems that people really dislike effects in the opposite direction, even if they are significant. <laughs> so that's pretty strong dislike of things that disprove them, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that seems really problematic. And it points to this sort of like additional sort of bias of so remember we talked about um, the super fast mm -hmm. neutrinos, the faster than light mm -hmm. neutrinos. Um, it points to this bias where we're more willing or not more willing. We only look mm -hmm. for errors when things mm -hmm. don't confirm what we're looking for, right? So if you find something that just confirms, oh, yeah, this is in line with what, then you don't look for errors. But right, like maybe they wouldn't have found that, that wire that was loose if things just looked right, yeah. right? And so you have this this sort of imbalance of not finding errors and mistakes in your own work as long as things are going mm. your way. Well, I remember um, a PhD student that I used to work with when I was also a PhD student. And he had found an effect and it was exactly what he wanted. And then he didn't really double check mm -hmm. if he made some sort of coding error or anything. But it mm -hmm. turns out that um, almost when he was ready to submit the, the the PhD, actually, he found that he had half of the data set had been recoded in the wrong way. So he flipped oh, the God. conditions for half of the <laughs> data set. And that actually created this nice effect that he wanted to find. Now, I'm pretty oh. sure if he would have found an effect in the opposite direction, he would have like, what's going on here? I have exactly. to double check my data. But because he found exactly what he was looking for, this didn't happen. So yeah, right. um, I'm pretty sure that I also double check my own data more carefully or my code more carefully 
if things look not like I expect them to be. Yeah. Maybe sometimes it makes sense because the data really just looks weird. But, you know, I definitely think that's the thing. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And one of the sort of guardrails against that that I really appreciate that also comes from physics that also, you know, Dr. Perlmutter told me about, well, it's not something I would have ever thought to do in psychology, but it's something they do in physics, which is blinding Mm -hmm. your analysis. Um, So essentially what you do is you get your data and then you sort of have to figure out the details. Like it depends on what your data structure is like. Um, But essentially what you do is you, you change the data a little bit so that you can clean it, you know, write the code to analyze it, do all of those things, but you won't mm-hmm. know the results. So a simple example would be, let's imagine we have, a, and we're do, we need to do an ANOVA, we have an independent variable with like three categories, and then you have an outcome variable. You essentially shuffle your labels yeah. for your categorical variable, and then you just do everything, right? You run the analyses and stuff, but you won't know the results because the data is sort mm-hmm. of jumbled up. Um, and that, I think, can be a really helpful. I've I've tried it myself, um, and I, it just it's so almost mm. liberating mm. because you almost don't have to worry about is it significant, is it not significant, what does it mean? That all that's all out of the window when you're just sitting there writing the code, and you're like, now I can just focus on making sure that I'm writing the analysis yeah. properly and and checking for mistakes or you know to make sure that that part is done, and then you can worry about is it significant or not later. And it's kind of fun. You can then have a. I think um, I don't. So when the Higgs boson was mm-hmm. discovered um, in 2012, I don't know if you remember. Um, that's when I found out about blind analysis. You can have a yeah. big party, <laughs> right? When you do like a real little reveal, like like people do their baby, <laughs> you know, baby rebirth, gender reveal party, <laughs> the this gender is a reveal, condition, condition yeah, reveal can- party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your your p value reveal party. <laughs> no, it it makes a lot of sense. I, I did. I've never tried right. it myself, but I I have seen uh, people right. write about it, and the liberating yeah. part makes sense. I think EJ EJ Wachenmacher. <laughs> Wachenmacher is a Dutch name. Wachenmacher. Wachenmacher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Him and his team publish. I have published a few papers that are really huh. excellent. Um, Very good. Also to like how to adapt it for psychology, and they just published another one showing that the results are better i haven't read the paper but hmm. i think they do oh, interesting. some work on that at least yeah. in psychology and i can yeah. also imagine mm-hmm. that um of course i mean you presented especially in the hypothesis testing part so really the confirmatory testing like which was your condition and then mm-hmm. it allows for mm-hmm. some mm-hmm. data cleaning mm-hmm. but i could even imagine that it's very interesting to do this uh, in the more exploratory analyses where you're like okay hmm, what might be hmm. going on because i think there you have a lot of uh, room for your confirmation bias to guide you in a certain direction uh, you want to look at something like this but if you don't really know what the variables are you might actually in your exploratory analysis surprise yourself a little bit with something that you know you did not think would come out of this data so maybe it's also a good tool to really explore and find things that uh, are free from any confirmation bias Um, I, that might be a little bit harder to do, I think, to do it in the exploratory phase, just because you'd have to blind everything and you don't know what you're doing with what. Exactly. And you don't know exactly because, because the, because the idea is that you want to maintain the structure of your data enough to be able to, oh yeah, check distributional assumptions, et cetera, et cetera. It's difficult to do it it for that. I think Mm. it really, Mm. it's difficult to do it for exploratory work, I think. And and that's one of the reasons, right? You do, it's like, we try to find things that might, you know, are just happenstance that just end up in our data. And then we try to, you know, do a confirmatory test the second time. And I think in that case, it makes sense to blind because you know exactly what the test you need to yeah. run is, but you can blind the data so you don't know what the yeah. results will be. Much yeah. harder to, I, I, I think it's well, might not. Maybe yeah. a collaborator yeah. can just reverse score a couple of things or something, you know, just throw in a little bit of noise. To, <laughs> just little, exactly, little errors. Not yeah. completely blind, but a little bit, let's say, uh, yeah, you're a bit uh, distracted basically a bit. Uh, um, yeah, we hide a little bit of the truth in your data set and then you explore more freely who knows who knows but it's cool that you tried it and that you found it liberating that's nice to hear so something maybe for people to try yeah i think so i think it can be it it obviously makes life harder for you you are making your life much harder because you have to sort of you know do the analyses and then you have to register your analyses that you have to sort of post them somewhere and then do it yeah. and then you could you know totally have a handy you know you've you haven't then found significant results and people could then come and say but i personally found it to be super i mean in an ideal case there would be somebody else that would be blinding the data for you and then you'd be Mm -hmm. analyzing it but even even 
that that was not the case in my situation. But even then, I found it yeah. to be super helpful. It's nice to hear. Yeah. And a lot of yeah. the things we do in statistics um, actually are all about trying to prevent confirmation bias. Um, so even something like um, setting the alpha level at this pre-specified value of um, 0.05, if you go into history, what the main reason for this was, um, you actually have a student from student D-test or uh, William Gossett, who mm -hmm. worked, yes, Gossett, yes, worked for yeah. the Guinness mm -hmm. Brewery. Yeah. And he writes, um, um, I, I have the quote here, he writes, on the other hand, it's generally agreed that to leave the rejection of experiments entirely to the discretion of the experimenter is dangerous, as he's likely to be biased. Mm. Hence, it has been proposed to adopt a criterion depending on the probability of such a wide error occurring in a given number of observations. So basically, mm. setting this threshold somewhere prevents... People from just saying, no, 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 it's low enough, this p-value, you know? You, you basically set it for other people because yeah. otherwise they would move it around. So so even practices mm -hmm. like this all try to prevent confirmation bias from influencing our, our conclusions, basically. Yeah, and it does seem like a really big issue, um, especially in psychology, mm -hmm. I think, where we're just, you know, it's, or maybe, I don't know, what do you think? Like, do you think it's worse in psychology than other scientific disciplines? It's or? a good question. Um, it would be worse because, I mean, one reason it could be worse is because it's easier to want certain outcomes. I mean, you can also really be a fan of, I don't know, string theory in physics or something. But it feels a little bit mm -hmm. different than, I don't know, finding that some social group that you belong to uh, is indeed mm. worse off uh, in certain procedures and deserve an extra break mm. because now you're personally involved. And that's not really true right. in string theory or something, you know? Right. There's more personal stake. Yeah. Yeah. But but actually, here's a question about mm. statistics that I was wondering. So I am very mm. skeptical of Bayesian statistics. I mean, there's a lot of times, like the whole idea of, the, one of the things that has always struck me as odd with when people advocate for Bayesian thinking or like, especially in statistics, maybe like Bayesian analyses is that, oh, we always have a prior, mm -hmm. like, you know, you should have a prior and that's how babies reason. Like babies, have, you know, you just update your beliefs. And I'm like, yeah, sure, but they are babies. Like, we sh are we really taking cues about how to do, you know, science about how, from how yeah. babies think? And that to me is like, well, like, it just seems such an odd thing to me to say, oh, we should have priors. It's like, no, but I thought the whole point was that mm -hmm. we shouldn't have, right? Like, we should start yeah. from a clean slate of like, oh, yeah, it could go either way. And then you yeah. see what's what's happening. And so I'm, I'm curious what, what you think that's a valid criticism of Bayesian thinking, at least yeah. in statistics. So I think a lot of philosophers like uh, Bayesian philosophy of scientific knowledge updating, where, I mean, and I really mm. read papers sometimes where people write, so let's just assume a scientist as a rational Bayesian updater. So that just means uh -huh. like you're basically a robot. You have no biases. Right. You don't have any <laughs> desires or wishes. Yeah. You just take data as it is. Right. You do the calculation in your yeah. perfect perfect head and, and you update exactly as much as you should. Um, well, in that sense, yeah. it's a very attractive thing, right? Then then I think it would be very right. close right. to perfect. Uh, but indeed, like the other mm. concern is... Um, the use of priors is, of course, a way where people can sneak in something. But I think in practice, the same kind of mechanisms that are at play, you know, like specifying things or, or blinded analysis, I guess maybe that's maybe a reason why somebody like Erik Jan Wagemakers likes blinded analysis, because it's another way to prevent priors from influencing your inferences too much. Um, so we have all these tools to prevent mm -hmm. it. And, and if you do those, if you, uh, again, like Feynman says, uh, bend over backwards to prove yourself wrong yeah then i think they're fine so you know mm. sure they they give people a little bit of an extra window to pick a prior that makes their data look better but yeah we should just make sure that they don't use it in that way and then then i think it's fine yeah it's really more the i would say the attitude or the system we build around it that's important than the specific approach to statistics and the numbers you calculate i think these things like um uh, adversarial collaborations are nice or blinded analysis mm -hmm. so all these processes we put in place to make sure we don't fool ourselves yeah yeah there's there's another one uh, another one that i would like to mention we we tried this out and also it's not so much on the statistics level i guess like adversarial collaboration is more confirmation bias on the theory level 
you know and we mm-hmm, tried mm-hmm, we tried this mm-hmm, as well mm-hmm. and we had this idea which we call red teams and this mm-hmm. is an idea from um, software development so in software development there are people who um, want to prevent hackers from taking over some sort of system you know so they they create a, a system but then there's a red team and a blue team and the blue team develops the software and the red team basically tries to hack it or get into it or something or destroy it or something so you haven't like republicans and democrats if if they if they would work <laughs> together towards a joint goal because that's the the thing that happens in software development in the end everybody wants right. this software to be as good as possible so it would work perfectly if they both want the country to be uh, as good as it can be which yeah i mean for for software it's yeah. kind of easy when you know it works and right. it's not hacked it's a little bit easier than for a country yeah well, yeah, it's not not even completely different because in the Netherlands we have a system. We have many parties, and we have this political system where the parties change quite regularly within government all the time. So there's a coalition, and and that that forces people mm-hmm. to be a bit more like um, like this. So they have internal checks, and there is tension within a coalition yeah. because they might really be a very green party and a very um, liberal party or something you know different uh, interests um but they still have to get to um uh to to governing the country uh, as a coalition against the opposition so anyway it might work but these red teams are there to basically criticize yeah. people before they put the software out before it's too bad so and we thought this is also nice in science we can try this in science so when you're designing your study or when you're think- thinking about your analysis or whatever then what we did is we got a team of experts on certain topics. So it could be the, the literature. It could be the method mm-hmm. or the statistical analysis. And all these people would basically try to criticize the study as it was being designed as mm-hmm. seriously as possible. Yeah. Really just say, okay, this could go wrong or this is wrong with it. Or what about this? Or what if this happens? So the whole list mm-hmm. of possible mm-hmm. problems and then yeah. the, the other team, the blue team, would have to think, okay, so how can we deal with this? Can we do some checks to make sure that this is not a problem? Can we mm. add a question to mm-hmm. double check that people are not doing this or all these things? And it, it was very interesting to see this process because um, um, not a lot of people wanted to do it because it's really a hassle. You make, you know, this is really, I feel, bending over backwards. Like the people who did these things that tried them out yeah. with us are really putting in so much effort to make sure that they're not fooling themselves. The people who did it uh, did studies on quite contentious issues. Um, mm, so, right, that's what mm, I was thinking. That the questions that you're asking them would have to be really important for everybody to be invested yeah. really into it, right, into trying to yeah, answer it yeah. well. So, so let's say there was often a risk that the outcome would be socially quite undesirable. So, the study would be mm. something that people would say, oh, "How could you say this?" You know, um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. For example. Uh, saying that um, there are no problems with inequality in a certain field, which, mm-hmm. you know, it's yeah. a theoretical possibility. You might want to test it. But if you say that there's not another problem, you better make damn sure that, you know, you really have a good mm-hmm. point. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. so those kind of situations. And, and I have to say that it worked right. very well. Like everybody was pretty... Um, excited about the increasing quality and and you could really see people having to deal with issues that they would not have thought about themselves but they were pretty valid um but yeah it's a very Mm -hmm. effortful process oh it sounds like it but can i ask a question i almost i mean i one of the things that i personally feel like is that a lot of the times i mean ideally a lab Mm -hmm. meeting or like your own lab people around you would Mm-hmm. help you do mm-hmm. this right and that's one of the goals is like oh yeah you, you you're thinking through ideas and then you present it to your lab and then hopefully they're trying to point out you know oh yeah maybe this could wrong this could wrong ideally it would work that way but i do notice and maybe this is a, i mean i'm in california so everybody's like ec- extremely you know politically correct and super nice and everybody says mm-hmm. good morning um but i do think people are very very reluctant to be sort of disagreeable mm-hmm. um yeah so is the when you have red teams is it anonymous? Mm-hmm. Like, well, we, or we really discussed it... all those kind of things, like how we want to do it. Mm. Um, and, and, and this is an important point because, for example, um, um, so people had the option to be anonymous. 
And I think it's important mm-hmm. because if we would say, look, you can hire, let's say a statistical consultant, and their job is going to be to criticize mm-hmm. your study as much as possible. And then they do a really mm-hmm. good job. And I've seen people write blog posts yeah. about this. They are statistical consultants and they say, the tricky thing about being a consultant is you want to criticize them, but not so much that they don't hire you next time. <laughs> you know, which is a pretty yeah. realistic concern. So so it's very right. difficult to have the system where people are really completely honest about all the possible criticism they can come yeah. up with. So, so yeah, we, we did keep people anonymous. I think um, sometimes we gave them the option to say yeah, who like, they were afterwards, for example. But um, yeah, mm-hmm. but really so that they f- would feel free and there would be no uh, problem if they would just be completely honest what they thought about something. Because, and, and also, for example, we didn't reward them with co-authorship. Because if you reward people with co-authorship, then they have a similar problem where they say, okay, I'm going to shoot down this study, but not so much that it's never going to get published because what is what is in it for me then, right? So that can also be a problem if you're collaborating with it with um, co-authors. Like nobody's right. going to shoot down the right. project and say like, oh yeah, this is unpublishable now. We have to, we just messed up. We just messed up. This is just a badly designed yeah. study. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. So I think that makes it difficult. That makes it difficult to have it you know, within um, a a community where you have repeated interactions and maybe even some power dependencies or those kind of things. It makes it especially tricky. And that's why we have anonymous peer review. You know, that's what what you said. Right. We have this system because these anonymous reviewers are the the only ones that should feel free enough to really say what's wrong Mm -hmm. with something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. It's so tricky. Like if you, at the end of a project with somebody, find out that, oh yeah, they're, there's these massive flaws that completely invalidate the whole enterprise. Yeah, what do you yeah, we, do then? We all become rational um, Bayesian updaters and we have no feelings and we just <laughs> compute information. We say, oh, thank you very much for this additional piece of information. I'm now updating. Yeah, okay. Broop, broop. Yeah, everything fine. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. So yeah, the feeling part, you know, that makes makes science interesting, but also so difficult. Very tricky. Very tricky. Um, okay. Um, so this was pretty interesting so far. I think we discussed a lot of topics. Is there anything else you'd like to mention that we haven't mentioned so far? Yeah. So there's one more thing that I think could be extremely helpful in avoiding confirmation bias that, um, well, it, it's already done in certain disciplines, but I think if more disciplines adopted, it would be great. And I think I've discussed this with you before, but it's separating theoretical oh. You know, work from experimental work. I think I've, because in, yeah, in physics, they they do this, right? You have the theoretical physicists who come up with the theories and they come up with, right? They're doing Mm -hmm. the if P, Mm -hmm. then Q, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So they're doing that kind of thinking. Um, And then you have the experimental physicists, which are then actually going to test them. And I think if you create that break between people who are coming up with the ideas and people who are testing them, I think we would see much less of um, of the confirmation bias. And it actually all, almost like capitalizes on this like human tendency of trying to prove other people wrong, right? So I think if we did that in more disciplines where we split up the people who are coming up with theoretical ideas and hypothesis and people who are going out to actually test them, there's less of this comfort, you know, this idea of, oh, I'm just trying to prove what I thought was true to yeah. be the case. And I think that could be extremely, extremely helpful, especially in disciplines like psychology, but I think in other disciplines as well. So I think that's something we should definitely adopt. Another thing we should adopt from I physics. agree. I think this is a wonderful idea uh, to introduce. Uh, do you want to be yeah. the theorist or do you want to be the experimentalist? Yeah. <laughs> That's a great question, you know, because I do think people have certain proclivities, right, where I think some people do. And I've heard people say that, oh, yeah, I like more of the theory stuff and more of the, you know, thinking and stuff. And somebody else can do the statistics and somebody else can do the um, and maybe there are people who are probably just much better at designing experiments, for example. And in some way, it would work exactly. You were trying to get people more streamlined like more or more yeah, exactly. more specialized, you get specialized exactly roles and, it capitalizes you know. on yeah. exactly um which one would i be um i don't know daniel <laughs> <laughs> i like Maybe all of you it can take turns, you know when you want to be uh when, when you want to be optimistic you can be the theorist yeah. <laughs> uh, but if you let your right. skeptical self take over for a couple of weeks you turn into testing somebody else's ideas right <laughs> yeah yeah, I mean, the tricky thing is I was thinking, well, what would, a, what would a theoretical psychologist be? A theoretical psychologist would just be mm. a philosopher, you know? So do we even need theoretical physicists? And I think there is a sense of 
us as psychologists thinking that we're really empiricists, right? We're the people who are going out collecting data. But another, another way to do it would be, well, I also have my ideas and you have your ideas, but I test your ideas and you test my ideas, you know? So we, we do both, but we test other people's ideas and then we generate our own and somebody else can test them. So it's sort of a marketplace. You put out your, your hypotheses. Somebody, if, if they seem interesting enough, somebody will test them. And then you figure out, oh, who's putting up other interesting hypotheses and I test them, but you don't test your own. Yeah, it's a, a very good yeah. idea. And um, because it forces also some other stuff. So it forces uh, the theories to be very precise because otherwise those those other right. people can't exactly. test it. Nobody you know? will so you test have to it. put the stuff exactly. in there. So, sounds perfect. Yeah, yeah, I think well I've done. solved it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Nullius in Verba. Our theme song is Newton's Cradle by Grand Brothers. If you have any thoughts, feedback, or comments you'd like to share, you can reach us over email at nelliusinverbapod at gmail.com or our social media accounts at Mastodon or Twitter. In this episode, we discussed how confirmation bias can hinder knowledge generation and evaluation and what we can do to not just not fool ourselves, but to bend over backwards in trying to show how we could be wrong. Next time, we will touch on the topic of eminence and reverence for authority in science and what role that plays in the sociology of science. We hope you will join us. <laughs>